In Parshas Bahalois, one of the things that we learn about is the carbon Pesach that the Jewish people brought the first year that they were in the desert, which was markedly different in many respects from the carbon Pesach that they brought before they left Mitzrayim. One of the differences is that this carbon Pesach was brought on a Shabbos. So that opens a conversation for us about how come it is that a carbon Pesach should be brought on a Shabbos. And it's because carbon Pesach is an unusual hybrid. On the one hand, it's a personal carbon brought by each group of people. And yet on the other hand, it has certain elements that are a communal sacrifice, which is why it should be brought on a Shabbos. Now, in the investigation of this process, we're going to see a debate between Rabbi Yoshia and Rabbi Yonason about how exactly you're supposed to view the carbon Pesach. And that will develop into a an ongoing thematic debate between them about whether we look at things as they come together in a group or if we look at things as they are individually. We're going to examine eight different areas of halacha where this particular debate plays out. We're also going to see how the story of the Korban Pesach played a pivotal role in Hillel becoming the Nasi leader of the Jewish world and how he alludes to it in a Mishnah that we also read straight after Pesach. And it's got a very powerful lesson for us in terms of the value of the individual as part of the greater society. One of the big distinctions between the Korban Pesach and Mitzrayim, the one in the desert, which is described in our parish, that they brought the Korban Pesach on the 14th of Nisan. So there are two differences that we're going to focus on. Number one, Pesach Mitzrayim, Hukra Vimea Shavuot Bechoyl. The carbon that they brought before they left Mitzrayim was during the week, and we can prove this. Sharei Machamisha B'Shabbos Yotzi Somi Mitzrayim. The Jewish people left Mitzrayim on a Thursday. Logically, the preceding day was a Wednesday, so they brought the carbon Pesach during the week. Ve'ilo Pesach Midbar Hukra B'Shabbos. Whereas the carbon Pesach a year later, first year in the desert, that was brought Dafka on a Shabbos, Kidisa Beseder Oilam, Sheresh Chedish Nisan, Shaloisa Shana, Hoya Rishan, and Maisa Bereshis, Veninsa Shudalabinisan Chobe Shabbos. As we see in Seder Oilam, that that year Rosh Chedish Nisan was a Sunday, which means automatically that the 14th of Nisan had to have been a Shabbos. So there's the first difference that Korban Pesach in Mitzrayim was a weekday and in the Midbar was on a Shabbos. That will link to the next big difference between them, and that is based on Pesach Mitzrayim, Ikarad Gosha Al Hayochid. In the Pesach that they brought while they were still in Mitzrayim, the focus was on the individual. Kol Yochid, each individual, or Bais, each family, Aleph, did the entire thing from start to finish. The Shechita, the sprinkling the blood, the roasting, etc. was all done by the family. Where did they do it? Where did you do it? In your private property, in your own domain, in your own home. Whereas, whereas nobody did the carbon Pesach in the Midbar at home, you had to come to the Mishkan, and subsequently every other carbon Pesach had to come to the Beis HaMikdash. And then that created this linkage between everybody bringing their carbonos together. Like the Gemara says, they came with this big conglomeration of people. Sibur, for which reason the carbon at that point is called a communal carbon. Big differences. 
So therefore, we can now link these two facts and say one depends on the other and they are relevant even post-Matan Torah as well. Meaning to say the link between this being individual and it being during the week and that being communal and being on a Shabbos, that's relevant. So how come it is that a carbon Pesach can be prepared on Shabbos, even though it includes activities which are ordinarily not allowed on a Shabbos. Why? Because it's a carbon Tzibur. Like the Gemara Psachim says, One time it happened that the 14th of Nisan was on a Shabbos, and in Yerushalayim, and they couldn't remember, the community could not remember, it had been a few years, as we know, there could often be a large gap between one time and the next that Pesach is on a Motzi Shabbos. So it was a few years. They forgot what the halacha was. As the Gemara tells us, the leadership at the time who were called the Bnei Beseira literally could not remember what the halacha is. Do you or don't you prepare the common Pesach and Shabbos? Amalayim Hillel, so Hillel, who had recently come from Babel, said to them, What is the only one carbon Pesach that overrides Shabbos during the course of the year? Rather, he said, So we have more than 200 carbonos Pesach that override um Shabbos. Now, obviously, he wasn't, he wasn't implying that there's more than one Pesach in the year, but rather he was saying, His point was that we know that a carbon Musaf, meaning, uh, sorry, a carbon Tzibur, like, for example, a carbon Musaf or a carbon Tamid, a communal sacrifice override Shabbos. How do we know that? Because both the carbon Pesach and the carbon Tamid are defined as having to be brought in the correct time, so therefore I can conclude. Just like the timing of the carbon Tamid is so important that it overrides Shabbos, likewise the timing of the carbon Pesach is that important that it overrides Shabbos. This is even more clear in the words of the Yerushalmi in the same story. See how he says it? According to the Yerushalmi, he made a direct correlation. Just like the Tomid is a communal sacrifice, so is the Pesach a communal sacrifice. Therefore, logically, in the same way as the communal Korban Tomid override Shabbos, so does the communal Korban Pesach override Shabbos. Okay, parenthetically, now, hang on a second. Who needs it to be associated with a korban tzibur? We have an opinion, and the Rambam brings us opinion, the halacha, that says any korban with a fixed time overrides Shabbos, even if it's a personal korban. So how is it that now we're making the correlation specifically because the korban Pesach has a communal element to it? So let's just quickly deal with that question so it doesn't bother us, and then we can come back to what we have to talk about. That opinion that says that a carbon that has a fixed time overrides Shabbos, even if it's brought by Yochid, is a, only the opinion of Rabbi Meir. Whereas the Tanakama in that particular debate says, it's in Tmura, says that actually it has nothing to do with the timing, it has everything to do with whether it's personal or communal as a sacrifice. Says very clearly, a carbon tzibur overrides Shabbos, a personal carbon does not. 
Now the very fact that there was this question and debate between Hillel and the Bnei Becerra, is the carbon Pesach a communal sacrifice or not? And the big part of what we're going to focus on in the Sicha, the debate between Rabbi Yoshi and Rabbi Yonason, they obviously must then assume the opinion of the Tanakama. Otherwise, why would the issue they were arguing over be the issue of whether or not it is a carbon Sibur? If they followed the opinion of Rabbi Meir, nobody would be debating because they'd look, oh, this is a fixed carbon. It belongs in a certain time in the calendar. It has to happen Shabbos or no Shabbos. The fact that they debate it shows that that is not what they are thinking, that they're convinced the issue over here is whether it's a personal, an individual, or a communal sacrifice. However, it is important to note, and this will come up again right at the end of the Sicha, it is important to note that even the Tanakama will also require a time element. Because, of course, if a korban did not have to be brought today, why should it override Shabbos, even if it is a korban tzibur? But that's like a sidebar issue. It has a practical nafkamina, as we're going to see in a second. So there's a korban that we bring if the entire community forgot a particular halacha and transgressed that particular halacha. They have to bring parhelem So it is a communal sacrifice, but it doesn't have a specific date. And therefore, it cannot override Shabbos. Okay, so we've parked that issue. We thought perhaps you might argue that the reason Karpen Pesach overrides Shabbos is because Zmanoi Kovua. We now know clearly that that is a Das Yochid. And everybody in our conversation goes with the view that the only reason Karpen Pesach should override Shabbos is because it has at least an element of Karpen Tzibur associated with it. Therefore, if you go back to the very first carbon Pesach that was ever brought, which we now know chronologically was a weekday carbon, and of course, logically, it is a carbon Yochid. That could imply to us that a personal carbon is not powerful enough to override Shabbos. Whereas the following year, when we see that they did bring the carbon Pesach on Shabbos, that suddenly opens our eyes to the fact that the status of the carbon Pesach has now changed. Now it is seen as a communal sacrifice. How do I know? Because look, it overrides Shabbos. So, now we're getting into the real meat of what we want to discuss over here, that the carbon Pesach is actually a hybrid. So as far as Shabbos is concerned, we'll consider it a carbon Sibur and therefore can override Shabbos. But it still retains elements of a carbon Yochid. In fact, the truth is that a carbon Pesach is much more a personal carbon that also has a carbon Sibur element, if you're clinical about it. Because, first of all, every single group would bring their own carbon Pesach. Nobody else is bringing your carbon Pesach. And they had to pay for it out of pocket. Not from the communal funds. Unlike other korbanos that are eaten by the koihanim or not eaten at all and just brought on the mizbeach, this is eaten by the family or whoever is part of the chabura. 
not only that, but Actually, the whole goal of the Korban Pesach is to be eaten. Now, the Korban Tamid, the whole goal of the Korban is to be on the Mizbeach. So that tells you this is very personal. And there are various other halachas, like the fact that you can only participate in the Korban Pesach if you were part of the group, uh, assigned to the group before Pesach came in. All of these details highlight the fact that the Korban Pesach is first and foremost a personal Korban. The Korban Sibur, Sibur, is something that it also has. It also has this element of Sibur. What's the Sibur element of it? That everybody comes together, that we divide the whole community into three groups. So you have these massive groups of people all bringing the Korban at the same time. But what's relevant for our conversation is, What's relevant for our conversation is that the carbon Pesach is a hybrid. It has elements which are like a personal carbon and elements which are like a communal carbon. Actually, let's take it deeper than that. Here's a fascinating thing about the Korban Pesach. It's not one Korban that it comprises two different halachic components, a personal component and a communal component, but there's absolute overlap. The communal component has elements which feel personal. The personal component has elements that feel communal. For example, There are three examples of how it's personal. Your money, your group, and it's for the purpose of you eating. Which is why each group needs its own individual lamb that it's going to use as the carbon. But look, the private element has to be part of a public experience. Your personal group spending your money eating your carbon that is designed for your personal consumption has to be part of a communal event where everybody gathers together in the base Amigdash in three groups. On the other hand, And here's another interesting thing. On the other extent, the communal element of the Korban Pesach, everybody coming together is deliberately not one big gathering. It's split into individual gatherings. So even after we bring everybody together, we do it in such a way that you still feel the sense of individuality. So it's interesting, right? We split everybody up into separate groups uh, to represent the fact that the Torah uses the expression Kal Adas Yisrael, that there's three different groups that happen over there. In other words, what we're seeing over here about a Korban Pesach is that it is an incredible hybrid of both the personal and the communal. That will lead us into a fascinating conversation about exactly that, the balance of the communal and the individual and how that all works together, what takes precedence and what is the more powerful element, the individual or the communal. 
First piece of information we need is to go back to that original debate between the Bnei Becerra who were unsure of whether or not you're allowed to bring the Korban Pesach on Shabbos and Hillel who said absolutely you can. What are they debating about? Seeing as the Korban Pesach has both elements that are private and elements that are communal. You could debate which is the primary. It has both elements agreed. But is the main component the private aspect or is the main component the communal aspect? If we feel that the primary element of here is the private side of the Korban Pesach, then it cannot override Shabbos, like the Bnei Becerra were worried. But if the primary element of the Korban Pesach is its communal nature, then, like Hillel says, Korban Tzibur overrides Shabbos. We'll find a, a nice proof to this way of thinking that it's all a debate about what is dominant, the communal or the private aspect of the korban. On our parasha, where it says that they made the korban Pesach, they brought the korban Pesach at the correct time one year later, there the Sifri tells us that the same debate about whether or not a Korban Pesach overrides Shabbos is debated between Rabbi Yosha and Rabbi Yonasa. Rabbi Yosha, Yalef, Yalef, Mi Bemoyadoyesha Korban Pesach Doyesha Shabbos, Kedas Hilo. Rabbi Yosha says, but it has to be Bemoyadoyesha. It has a fixed time. It has no choice. It can only be brought on the 14th of Nisan. So like Hillel, he says, Doyesha Shabbos. For Rabbi Yonason, he argues, me mashma ze adain lo shomano. Rabbi Yonason says that's not a clear proof. That means that Rabbi Yonason still had a doubt and wasn't absolutely convinced that just because you have that word, that that means automatically that it overrides Shabbos. In other words, Rabbi Yonason had the same questions that the Bnei Becerra had. Now that we know that there is this big question, what takes precedence? The individual, because there's, an, there's a personal individualized element of the carbon, or the communal. And now that we know that and now that we know that that's what Rabbi Yonason and Rabbi Yosha are, are debating over here, and as we're about to discover in seven other places, we can assume that it is a leshitosom, that each one has a particular thematic approach to how halacha should work. Does the individual take precedence or does the community take precedence? That will color all of their debates, including this one, why they believe, as they do, either that it's clear that the Korban Pesach overrides Shabbos or that it's not so simple. So, here are a string of examples that show that Rabbi Yoshia and Rabbi Yonason argue along these exact lines in other places as well. First example relates to humans. Are humans defined by individuals or are they defined by communities? And we're going to look first Aleph Birani Dachas. The halacha of Irani Dachas, which is a city in Israel where the majority of the people have served Avodah Zarah, and now we have to destroy everything. How many people? What's the minimum? What's the maximum? How do you define what is an Irani Dachas? So, according to Rabbi Yoshia, if it's more than 10 people and under 100 people, that is already considered Irani Dachas. 
Rabbi Yonason says the minimum amount is 100 people, and then the maximum extends until it's the majority of the entire Shevet, in which case it's no longer Irani Dachas. So now Rashi explains why does Rabbi Yoshia say that the number is between 10 and 100? Because if it's fewer than 10 people, nobody in their right mind is going to believe that a city comprises a population of less than 10 people. So the minimum has to be 10. And if it's more than 100 people, they are no longer considered just a city. They are now considered Sibur, a large community. So what's Rabbi Yoshia telling us? That the minute the population exceeds 100 people, it has a whole different definition. That is considered a tzibur. That is considered a large amount of people. Rabbi Yonason disagrees. He says, more than 100 people just means more than 100 people. It means now there are many more people. And all of those more people come together, and that's all still considered an irahani dachas, until you hit the tipping point of being the majority of the shevet, which has a whole different halacha to it. In other words, According to Rabbi Yoshia, as we've already seen, the thing that is dominant is the communal aspect. So the moment there's an opportunity to say communal, that overrides all other considerations. As far as he's concerned, the minute you get to over 100 people, you've now entered the world of Tzibur. Tzibur is a powerful concept. It's a powerful definition. As long as there are a lot of people, they snap over from individuals into the class of Tzibur. And Irani Dachas is a whole lot of individuals who have done something wrong. Whereas Rabbi Yonason says, no, 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 the most important thing is the individual. So keep adding individuals and you still have individuals. And the only time the halacha will change is when the majority of the shevet has been indicted. And that's a different concept. But as long as you have more and more and more and more people, we don't suddenly call them a tzibur. We just say many people because the dominant aspect is the individual. We can see a similar discrepancy between them with regards to that number between 10 and 100 that according to Rabbi Yoshe is already an Irani Dachas and not yet according to Rabbi Yonason. Simply because Rabbi Yonason says less than 100 people, that, that is not even considered a group. That's considered just individuals and therefore you cannot call this a city or Irani Dachas. Rabbi Yosha says, what do you mean? There's already a group of people together. Groups become things. They become entities. So a group of people, over 10 people, is enough of an entity to already be irahani dachas. There they are, leshito saihu. Rabbi Yoshia looking at, let's see how we create a group because the group is the dominant force. Rabbi Yonason saying, let's see how we consider individuals because the individuals are the dominant force. Here's another example also in the human space. When it comes to the prohibition in Torah against cursing one's parents. So the Pasuk says, A person who will curse his father and, that's what the Lashon is, and his mother. From that I can only derive that if a person curses his father and his mother, then he is liable. And how do I know that if a person only curses one of his parents that he would be liable as well? Therefore the Pasuk had to add another expression. 
Aviv ve'imel kilel dom of boy, that if a person cursed his father and his mother, then it's blood on his own hands. Which means, Aviv kilel, if he cursed just his father, Imoi kilel, if he cursed just his mother, Divir Rabbi we derive it from the second Pasuk. The original Pasuk implied that both together would be the prohibition. I needed a second Pasuk to clarify that cursing just one parent is already forbidden. Whereas, Rabbi Yonason, Omer, Rabbi Yonason says, why do you need to play these mental gymnastics? The Torah is telling you that each individual is a transgression. If a person curses his mother, it's a transgression. His father, it's a transgression. Until the Torah uses a word to tell you that they're conglomerated, we assume that they're individuals. Both of their sparrows exactly as we expected. Rabbi Yosheh Svirleish Yesh Lirisus Mashanemar Ba'yikalalesavi Ve'asimoi Kikral Echod Rabbi Yosheh, who always looks at things trying to see the whole entity, straight away sees, oh, father and mother, that means one item. The, person, the people who gave birth to this man. Therefore, were it not for the fact that the Torah added another prohibition to say one who curses his father or mother is liable, logic would have said they both go together because we naturally gravitate in Rabbi Yoshia's world to seeing things in groups. Rabbi Yonason, on the other hand, always looks at things as individuals. So the first thing he notices in the Pasuk is the individual. The father is an individual, curse him, and that's a, a transgression. The mother's individual, curse her, and that's a separate, different uh, prohibition. Unless the Torah will go out of its way to say, together. And therefore, as far as he's concerned, I don't need an extra pasuk to teach me that there's a separate transgression for a father and for a mother. It is self-explanatory. Why? Because he sees things through the eyes of Yechidim. So those are two examples that relate to humans. Now let's look at examples that relate to Korbanos. Well, Pesach, Kenal, we've already discussed their two views about Korban Pesach, that Rabbi Yosha automatically sees it as a tzibur reality and Rabbi Yonason sees it as an individual reality. Here's another example, when it comes to bringing a bird as a carbon oil on the Mizbech. So the Pasuk says, that you want to bring this pleasing aroma to Hashem through either cattle or sheep. Why does it say it? Once the Torah uses the word I would have thought then that when you bring a carbon oil of any kind, including a bird, you always have to bring the accompanying Nesachim. Therefore, Rabbi Yoshia says the Torah had to clarify that we don't look at everything as one group. The whole carbon oiler with all of the possibilities of all the different creatures, all as one law, the Torah had to specify. Bakar and so Because I would have assumed otherwise that they all are the same law, including birds. Rabbi Yonason says, I don't need a special pasuk. The Torah uses the word zevach. Zevach is a word that applies only to animals and not to birds. So I naturally know that a bird is excluded. Why? Because from Rabbi Yonason's perspective, I'm always looking at each thing individually. So I have no reason to include the bird if it's not referred to by name or referred to by a language that would apply to a bird. Zevach does not apply to a bird. 
So, Lefi Rabbi Yoshe came and she asked for us the first Zevach by Fana Kolel Mitzarev Yachadas Kol Asugim Vegam Oifshem Likos Zeish Chitos Bichlolam. As far as Rabbi Yoshe is concerned, Zevach that's a that's a Tzibur word. It's a collective noun for any kind of creature that is brought on the Mizbeach, be it animal or bird, be it shechted with a knife or melika with a thumb. Doesn't make a difference. The main thing that we look at is the group. And therefore, Rabbi Yosha says, I have to find a way that the Torah could exclude something from the group if it intended to exclude. That's why the Torah said, Bakar and Soim. Whereas as far as Rabbi Yonason is concerned, focus on the individual information. The individual information of Yehah says the word Zevach. Zevach is with a knife, a tshchita, that automatically excludes a bird because a bird for Karbonus was shechted through a process called Melika using a nail and not a knife. Same theory. Rabbi Yosha comes from the perspective of let's look at the collective and then exclude exceptions. Rabbi Yonason comes from the perspective of saying, let's look at the details and then see if anything needs to be included to expand the, the definition. Next category we're going to look at is finance. So we know that if a person has to bring a choymesh, let's say somebody used something that had belonged to a koydesh and they now have to pay a penalty of an extra choymesh. So what is a choymesh? Direct translation, a fifth. Says the Torah, you have to add, in addition to the fact that you have to repay what you used, you have to add this penalty of a choymesh. So, how much is a choymesh? There's a debate between Rabbi Yosha and Rabbi Yonasan. So, Rabbi Yoshia takes the approach that he says, okay, so let's say a person stole a particular item, or has used a particular item that he shouldn't have used. He now has to pay back that item. Plus, he has to pay back a penalty where when we calculate the entire penalty, it will work out that the addition you have added is one-fifth of the total you're now paying. Rabbi Yonason says, no. How much did you use? Add 20% to that. So Rabbi Yosha is insisting that you pay essentially 25%. It's pretty much what it works out to. Whereas Rabbi Yonason is saying you pay just 20%. Why? Because the logic of Rabbi Yosha is you take the Choymesh fifth, you add it to the total. Out of all of that, you calculate a total, which you then pay one fifth on. <laughs> it's a little, little sounds a little convoluted, but that's basically how it works. You put it all together into one big group. Whereas Rabbi Yonason says the two distinct things happening over here, as we'll see in a moment. So Rabbi Yoishia Svirlesha Choimishumilevar Choimish Measkuma Kil Shalakernu Masha Moisifolo. As far as Rabbi Yoishia is concerned, what is considered Choimish is the percentage of the entire total of the original amount plus the additional amount. Now take a percentage of that. Whereas Rabbi Yonason Svirle Choimish Milagav Chumshe Shalkeren. Whereas Rabbi Yonason says, no, it's like, let's just keep it like really straightforward. You take off 20% of whatever the, the total is of the original amount. What's the logic? The explanation is this. Everybody will agree that the principal amount and the penalty amount are two distinct considerations. The keren is the principal amount that the person used, which has to be replaced. And the choymesh is an additional amount. But what they do have in common is they both form the correct payment that is required for this particular action that the person took where they used something they shouldn't have used. 
So what's the most important thing? The fact that they are both part of the repayment or the fact that they're each individual components? Rabbi Yosha straight away says, let's bring everything together into a group. So as far as Rabbi Yosha is concerned, the first thing I look at is I say, there's the principal amount, there's the penalty amount, put the two of them together because the primary thing you always look to do, the dominant feature is the collective, the communal. So put them both together and from there calculate the correct amount for the penalty. Whereas Rabbi Yonason says these are two completely separate things. So I look at the keren, the amount that was taken or used, calculate that, work out what the fraction, 20% of that is, that's the chomish. Two totally separate things. Yes, I pay them both at the same time and both as part of the same restorative process. But there are two distinct concepts. Again, Rabbi Yoshio looking at things in the collective and, and Rabbi Yonason looking at things individualized. And the last example for now, we'll come back to two other examples later. Benegalizman, with regards to time. Begidre Shilzman, very interesting, Begla Rufa. So when you have the story of the Egla Rufa, they find a person and John Doe who's been murdered somewhere on the road between cities. You calculate whichever is the closest city. And then the Zikane of that city have to come and do the ritual of the, the cleansing ritual of the Egla Rufa. And then we're told, that the piece of ground that is used for the Egla Rufa is ground that, well, this is the debate. Doesn't mean ground that has never been worked or will never in the future be worked. Rabbi Yoshe says that in order to do the Egla Rufa, they have to find a piece of land that nobody has ever used for farming or anything like that. It can never have been worked past tense. Rabbi Yonason says, no, from this moment of the ritual and onwards, it is now future dated. It's forbidden to ever use this land ever again. So the Gemara explains, look, it's absolutely clear that going forward, the Torah is clear that you may never use this land again for personal use. The debate is only whether it is retroactive. Rabbi Yosha says retroactive, why? Because he sees the whole of time as one conglomerate. There are two concepts that relate to time. Aleph, the one way to look at time is apratim shaboy. There is the timeline broken up into tiny little pieces Avar, hoive, veosid. Past, present, future. That's how we split time into individualized components. Then, based klal hazman, there is the generalized concept of time. Klolus hazman, the fact that past, present, and future are all part of. They're all part of the concept called time. Dovar echad amurkav mitzivur, avar hoive, veosid. Mitzirav right? It's, it's something that is comprised of all of these things together. So now, Rabbi Yoshia Mitzarfa Kaliochad Kimitzai Klolusem Shazmani of Vasidaminian Echod. Rabbi Yoshia says, past, present, and future are actually all just one concept called time. Velochenit Voravatanaya Shela Yeoved Bolo Yzorea, who we Mitsus at Sirvat Sirvashalem Shazman, who made a Gambi over. Therefore, as far as Rabbi Yoshia is concerned, the Torah is giving us an instruction over here that is regarding time. As far as he's concerned, time is one Hemshech, one continuum. And therefore, the halacha of time starts retroactively because you cannot split time. It's a tzibur. It's a collective. It's a conglomerate. 
Whereas Rabbi Yonason looks at it totally differently. He says there was a time in the past, there is a time, now there will be a time in the future, and the one is not automatically attached to the other. So in the past it might have been acceptable to use this land, and nevertheless from here going forward it may not be used any further. So what we have over here so far is six different examples where Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Yosha and Rabbi Yonason argue on exactly the same lines. Rabbi Yosha looking always to bring things together into a unified reality and Rabbi Yonason always focusing on the individual components. Now we have a principle which is that if two people debate about a particular issue and it's clear that they're using the same logic throughout, we have to ask ourselves the question, so why did you have to tell me the same thing six times? Surely you could have established it for me once, and I would have then extrapolated to every other time where you have an argument. I'd know this is why you're having the argument. Why do we have to know this information six times, or as we're about to see, eight times? And the argument has to be because if I had not defined this debate along these lines in each case, I would have had a reason to think maybe they're debating about something else. Maybe it's not this logic. Maybe it's a different issue that they feel is uh, is on their minds at this time. So Kfarnis Boy Kamapiomim, we've explained multiple times, that if you have a, an argument which follows a consistent approach and yet it's repeated multiple times, we have to find a reason, a motivation for why each of those arguments had to be presented independently. Dim loy kein, because if we cannot prove that logically, then die hoyesh machlokusim tuva b'makim echad. Because if it was that obvious and it was that clear, the argument could have pre- been presented once, and we should use our powers of deduction to work out how their shita applies in other cases. And that's what we often do. Ah, I know what Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yoshua hold, so I know what they're gonna, why they would argue or how they would argue in this particular case. Why do we have it spelled out so many times? Because in each case, we may have thought the argument was based on different uh, logic. Same applies to our scenario. We're going to start with the last ones. In the last three arguments, which is oif, whether or not you bring nesachim, or how exactly the pasuk has to define that you don't bring nesachim for a bird oiler. Choymesh, whether that's twenty or twenty-five percent. Uzman, whether you retroactively prohibit the use of the land of the egla rofa. So Efsha Hoyu Lefarish, it would have been possible in these three to explain So of course we're looking to say that it, the reason they argue in all these three cases is because they have their specific consistent approach that applies to all three cases. But you might have argued differently. And you might have argued that the debate between Rabbi Yosha and Rabbi Yonason in these cases is maybe not the debate between whether you focus on the communal aspect more than you focus on the individual aspect or vice versa. And But you might have thought there was a different, separate reason. Each one of these for a different reason. So we're going to go through the three of them. And in each case, we'll illustrate how you could have perhaps thought that they were arguing along different lines, and therefore we have to know that this is also Lashita Sayu. It's also the debate of communal versus individual. Number one. 
So the debate about whether or not a bird is automatically included in the carbonos and has to be specifically excluded by a pasuk, who says that that has anything to do with the communal or the individual? Maybe it's a different halacha, whether the Torah requires shechting for a bird. We know that the Torah does not require shechting for fish or for locusts, so perhaps the Torah also doesn't require shechting for a bird. Now, the fact that such a debate does exist in the Gemara is actually in the context of ordinary food for you and I, not for carbonois. And we all know that a carbon needs milika, at least the nail of the koyen, still. Still. Still, you may have thought that the word zevach is a word which is used not only for carbonos, but for any kind of shechting. And seeing as there is this debate whether or not birds should be shechted, and that's all related to in the word zevach, well, you might have thought that that's the debate between Rabbi Yoshia and Rabbi Yonason. If, in fact, a bird is included in the word zevach or not. So therefore we have to know, no, that's not why they're arguing. Rabbi Yosha and Rabbi Yonason are arguing over there, leshito sayu, following their consistent approach that Rabbi Yosha says we look at the klal, the tzibur, and Rabbi Yonason says we look at the individual. Next example, choymesh. So now, here's an example, a classic example of where you add choymish. Let's say that a person dedicated a particular item that they wanted to make hectish, and then they changed their mind. They say, actually, I want to buy it back. So we say, that's fine. You buy it back, but you've got to now pay the extra choymish. So the Rambam says there's a psychology over here. The Torah looks and analyzes the human psychology. The nature of people is to amass wealth. Therefore, what's, what's a person going to do? Look for the cheapest way out. <laughs> I want to buy this back from Hektish. Either I was Maktish or somebody else is Maktish. I want to buy it from Hektish at the cheapest possible rate. So maybe that's the debate between Rabbi Yoshia and Rabbi Yonason. How much does the psychology of a person allow themselves to cheat hectish? So maybe Rabbi Yonason says, look, as long as the guy pays 20% extra, we've dealt with the psychology of trying to get a good deal out of hectish. And Rabbi Yonason says, no, you need 25%. You would have thought that that is the debate. Therefore, we have to know, no, Rabbi Yonason and Rabbi Yonason are arguing about Koymesh based on their principles of whether the dominant feature is the conglomerate, the collective, or the individual. And lastly, Zman. The whole debate between Rabbi Yosha and Rabbi Yonason about the Egla Arufa and the retroactive prohibition might actually be a debate about how you perceive time. Do you perceive time as a whole lot of dots along a timeline, or do you perceive time as one organic reality? comes along the Gemara to tell us, guess what? They're arguing in the same light, the same vein as they had argued before. Namely, do you look at Tzibur or do you look at Yochid? So those are the last three. 
Current Pesach, we're going to still come to. So let's go to the first two that we quoted, which was uh, with regards to people. Maybe when we look at the Pasuk about cursing parents, maybe it's a debate about how to understand the style of the way the Torah spoke. In fact, this would be a stylistic question, not only about this particular pasuk, but across the board in the Torah. If the Torah ever lists more than one thing, but does not use the word yachdov, does that automatically mean that they're separate? Or the fact that they're listed together means that they're together? Obviously, you could never have derived that from any of the other arguments, because none of the other arguments um, analyzed the, the wording of the pasuk. So again, we have to be told the debate between Rabbi Yosha and Rabbi Yonason is not how you understand the stylistic language of, of a Pasuk that has the word Yachtov or could have had the word Yachtov. Instead, we're looking at the principle, do you focus on Tzibur or do you focus on Yachid? In fact, on the, same, on the same topic, we could have looked from a different perspective and we could have said, Look what happened over here. Here is a pasuk. So maybe Karen v'choymesh, it's spoken about together. The Torah is telling us about a single payment. So therefore we could argue, oh, Rabbi Yosha says single payment. Look at the whole thing as a conglomerate. Rabbi Yonason says single payment, but it's made up of two components. So let's recognize that. Whereas over here, over here, the Torah is speaking about two different things. There's a father and there's a mother. So maybe it's a different set of rules. And maybe you'd have reason to believe that even if ordinarily Rabbi Yoshio looks to put things together, maybe here the fact that the Torah listed father and mother separately is in itself an indication, an indicator that they should be separate. And lastly, when it comes to the Irani Dachas, of course, the core of that whole debate is what is a city? Maybe that's their argument. How do you define that word ir in the Torah? And at which point does the, the, the term ir no longer apply? And now we look at either groups of, uh, sorry, either we look at individuals or we look at something that's larger than a city. And so there also we have to be told, no, the machloikas of Rabbi Yoshi and Rabbi Yonason is whether we look to bring things together into a communal element or to see them Separately. I'll say that's not a real tzrichesa. We already have an example of that with the oif, right? Isn't that an analysis of the meaning of the word zevach? Is the word relevant to a bird or not? Why do we have to have the same debate again, how you interpret a word in the Pasuk with regards to the Irani Dachas, if you've already showed me that they debate the meaning of a word? Okay. First of all, we've already discussed that with regards to the Oif, there is the logical possibility that they're debating whether or not the Torah requires Shechita for a bird, but still, beyond that, we could actually argue over here that we're not just trying to understand what ir is, just, just what the meaning of the city is, but that when you deal with an ir anidachas, perhaps there are different halachas that apply to different amounts of people.
ולכן אבאמינא שבזה מאוד רבי יוישה לרבי יונסון דתפי ממאה, הבו עיר כמו שגם עיר היא ציבור. And therefore you think maybe רבי יוישה would actually agree with רבי יונסון, that even if you have more than a hundred people, it still could be considered a city. אוי לאידך גיסא, שרבי יונסון מאוד לרבי יוישה, שכמי שבכלל מעניין מוציאים שעשור מיסוי יוצא מכלל יחידים, maybe רבי יונסון would actually agree with רבי יוישה, that ten people is already considered a group, because we have a minion, we have אידה, we have various other examples of where the number ten could actually apply, imply a city. The point is that in each of these arguments, there was the potential of having read the argument a different way, and so we have to remind ourselves that there's consistency over here, and that Rabbi Yonason and Rabbi Yoshia are always arguing along the same lines. Do we look at the klal, or do we look at the prat? Do we try to create a tzibur, or do we focus on the yachid? Now, Shittas Rabbi Yosheh b'Mekalel, the Tzar Shnei Protim Aksuvim Yachad Batayra, let's go back for a second to the story of the Mekalel, okay? So Rabbi Yosheh takes the view that the Torah says a person who curses his father, a person who curses his mother, I automatically think he's talking about, in the Torah it's talking about, both of them together. So my natural instinct is to believe that you're only liable if you curse both parents, chas v'shalom. And I need a separate pasuk to separate the two. It's quite possible that Rabbi Yoshia would even apply not just a, two parents, which effectively are both the parents, right? That's what they have in common. And so therefore they're naturally part of the same reality. We're about to discover that Rabbi Yoshia is willing to take a radical enough opinion to say that there might be two things that are fundamentally different, but because the Pasuk speaks of them together and in the same process, that is enough reason to put them together into one cloud. So that's going to bring us to two other debates between Rabbi Yoshia and Rabbi Yonason. So here's a debate. Do we mix together the two different bloods from two different carbonos to be sprinkled around the Mizbech, on the corners of the Mizbech together or not? What, what's, the, what's the issue? So the Pasuk says like this. So on Yom Kippur, we have what's called the par, um, which we're going to see, oh, we'll see in a second. Okay, so you have this, the bull and you have the, the goat that both have to have blood sprinkled on the Mizbech on Yom Kippur. And they have to be mixed. Rabbi Yoshe says the two bloods have to go into the same container and be sprinkled together onto the Mizbeach. Whereas Rabbi Yonason, Whereas according to Rabbi Yonason, you first sprinkle the one and then you sprinkle the other. What are these two carbonos? So parashal king godami amakipurim hu karben yochid. The bull that we're talking about is the bull that the Koyen Gadol brings to be mechaper for himself. That's a personal carbon, private carbon. Whereas the goat is a carbon on behalf of the entire community. And nevertheless, Rabbi Yosha says, mix them all up together. So not only when it's two parents that the Torah speaks about in the same Pasuk, does Rabbi Yosha say, combine the two parents into one prohibition, because they're similar, even when it's blood from two completely different carbonos with two completely different alochas, Rabbi Yoshia still says, combine them together because the Pasuk said them together. Now that we're doing the comparison between the mixing of the bloods and the cursing of the parents, here's another chiddush 
with regards to the mixing of the blood. Not only that, Rabbi Yosha believes you take two different things and combine them because of the way the Pasuk presents them. More than that. We know that Rabbi Yoshi already told us that if not for the separate second pasuk that the Torah told us, we would have assumed that a person is only liable for cursing his parents if he cursed both of them. Now, what does both of them mean? Doesn't mean that he had to curse them both in the same breath at the same time. Could be that he cursed his father on Monday, and he cursed his mother next Wednesday. And the Kiddush of the Pasuk is that you would have thought that he's off the hook until such time as he curses the other parent much later on. Therefore, the Torah came to add a second Pasuk to tell us, no, even if you curse one parent, that's already a problem. Vahainu. So now what's what's interesting about this uh, this understanding of uh, of the Klala is that logic would have said you need both parents to be there before there is a Chiyav and that could be years down the line. And then the Pasuk came along to tell me a major Chiddush with a second Pasuk. Guess what? Even if a person only curses one of them, he's already liable. Now let's compare that to this idea of mixing the bloods. When it comes to sprinkling the blood, everybody agrees that you have to sprinkle, sprinkle the blood, both bloods onto the Mizbech. The only debate between Rabbi Yosha and Rabbi Yonason is, do you put them both together and sprinkle them at once? Or do you sprinkle one and then the other? So here you suddenly see the Chiddush of Rabbi Yosha. Not only is he saying you do it both at the same time, he's saying you mix them both into one unit. In other words, the Torah is telling us that Sibur is such a big deal that you take separate things, you turn them into a single unit, and then you sprinkle them. The Kiddush are sprinkling them at the same time. Even Rabbi Yonason would agree with that. Rabbi Yosha's point is that the Torah wants the Tzibur to be so much of a Tzibur that they actually become one mixture of blood. By the way, there's a, also a Kiddush from the perspective of Rabbi Yonason. Why? As we've already identified the goat is brought on behalf of the community. So you think, okay, Rabbi Yonason, you have to agree with this. You have to agree. You're dealing with a carbon Sibur over here. And next to it, you have a carbon Yochid. Surely even you would agree with Rabbi Yoshia that if you're dealing with something which is already communal, throw in the one individual into the communal pot, Okay, we get it in the case of cursing parents. The father is an individual and the mother is individual. So it's not natural to loop them all together, lump them all together. But yeah, surely Rabbi Yonason, you'd agree with Rabbi Yoshia that it makes sense to put the blood all together because it's already got a tzibur component. There's the Chiddush of Rabbi Yonason. He says, even when you're dealing with something which belongs to the tzibur, still the yachid remains dominant and distinct. And lastly, one more argument between the two of them. 
One last illustration of this debate where Rabbi Yoshia says, bring everything together, and Rabbi Yoshia says, keep things distinct. What happens if a mature adult has inappropriate relations with an underage girl? Says the Torah, then in a normal inappropriate relationship, both parties would be executed by the Beisdin. Says Rabbi Yoshia, Ad Rabbi Yoshia. Rabbi Yoshia says that the man is not liable if the woman is underage. If she's not liable, he's not liable. Rabbi Yoshia says they're unrelated to each other. If he does something which is an Avera, he is liable. So, Rabbi Yoshia Rabbi Yoshia sees the idea of executing somebody for an inappropriate relationship as a tzibur. Two things that come together when both parties are doing an avera, that's when you have to execute. Therefore, the only time you can apply this halacha is if both of them are old enough to be liable for their actions. Why? Because you look at the whole thing as one entity. Whereas Rabbi Yonason Svirle Shein Metzorfen Oisom Ki Chiyov Amisachol Al Kol Echad Bifnei Atzmoi Echad Echad Bifnei Atzmoi Omei So Ish Gomer Levadoi Rabbi Yonason says not at all. Each person is an individual. Each person is judged individually. Each person is liable for their own actions, and therefore it is possible that a man who commits an avera with an underage girl is still liable. Why do I need to know this? Why can't I just extrapolate it from the ongoing Lishitasam that they both hold that either you look at Sibur or you look at Yochid? To understand why it is that we need to spell it out in this case as well, Rashi will help us. Because this is not a scenario where the one party deserves one kind of punishment and the other party deserves a different kind of punishment. The girl is not in the realm of punishment. She's underage. She's not liable at all. So I would think in such a case, Rabbi Yosha should acknowledge Rabbi Yonason and say, Yes, it's true that I cannot say both parties are liable, but... One party couldn't be liable. So therefore, surely, like Rabbi Yonason says, we should be able to judge the man independently and say, you're the only one who could be punished over here. Therefore, there's a 100% liability for you. It's not going against Rabbi Yonason's shita, you would think, because it's not saying that we're not combining them together. They're saying there is nothing to combine. So you would have thought that Rabbi Yosha would support Rabbi Yonason and say, punish the man, and he doesn't. That shows you how strongly Rabbi Yosha believes that the siruf, the bringing together of different components, is the dominant feature of how you decide halacha. Now that we have all of this information, we have a very clear picture that Rabbi Yosha and Rabbi Yonason argue in multiple cases, seven other cases that we've looked at, about whether the tzibur is dominant or the yachid is dominant, let's plug that back into Korban Pesach, which has both components. There's something unique about Pesach, which is why the Korban Pesach could not have been derived from any of the other seven cases. 
The uniqueness of the Korban Pesach is, unlike every other example that we've used, where you could argue either it is a collective or it is about individuals, Korban Pesach, everybody agrees, has both components. So it's a more tricky debate. It's clean when Rabbi Yosha says, Tzibur dominates, and Rabbi Yonason says, Yochid dominates. But what happens if you're dealing with something that has both Tzibur and Yochid? Now what? So here there's logic to say this could be the case. Rabbi Yosha says, you're right, there's a Yochid component, that's actually what we'll focus on. Or Rabbi Yonason could have said, Rabbi Yosha, you're right, there's a Tzibur component, that's what we're going to focus on. So that's why we needed to have their debate here as well. Now, to better understand this concept and everything that we're learning over here about the Korban Pesach and the Korban Pesach having both components, that on the one hand there's a Tzibur element, on the other hand there's a Yochid element, if we really want to understand it well, let's understand what is a community, what is a collective, what is a Tzibur. The two possibilities. And based on which possibility you go with, will determine which you feel is the dominant Yochid Tzibur. So, one possibility. There used to be individuals. Now that we put all the individuals together, they lose their identity as individuals. And now there's a new concept called a Tzibur. And the Yochidim disappear. Or, Beis, or we could say a community is just a collection of many individuals. For example, So for example, we say, the more people there are, the greater the grandeur for the king. There the emphasis is not that they all disappear into some great conglomerate, there the greatness is so many people. Look how many people there are. Look how much honor that brings to the king. So what's a tzibur? Is a tzibur a new entity that overrides the existing yechidim? Or is a tzibur the result of all the yechidim? Shloim HaShazer Geder HaTzibur BePesach now, the carbon Pesach is the second type. We don't disappear in the carbon Pesach and become a single conglomerate represented by a single carbon as, let's say, the carbon Tamid. We're a community made up of individual groups where each group has its own space, its own halachas, its own requirement, its own budget. And, and, and even when we bring them all together, we bring them all together into separate groups. Now we're getting into something really fascinating about the nature of the Tzibur. Maybe we could say like this. Why is the Korban Pesach of all things the one that has both facets? Why is this Dafka where we find a Tzibur and a Yochid element? Pesach Uzman al-Eidat tells us that Pesach is the birth of the Jewish nation. 
ולכן, בקורבן פסח בואים לידי ביטל שני הקצובת שיש לנו בתכונס עם ישראל. So it's not surprising then that the קורבן פסח will illustrate to us the two primary characteristics of the Jewish people. This is our time. This is when we came to be. So this קורבן will tell us who we are. And we have two uh, different elements that make us who we are. On the one hand, on the one hand, we are a singular organism. All of the Jews come together to make one single entity. Yet on the other hand, every single one of us is a microcosm. Every one of us is an entire world as an individual. It's paradoxical, but that's the Jewish reality. One union where each individual is a whole world. Actually, that explains why you get the tzibur element of the Korban Pesach only a year later, only once the Jews are in the desert. You would have thought we should have had this right from the get-go, right? Exodus is the time where we become a nation. That's our birth. Surely then you should have already had both components. Why does it wait a whole year? Because, King Gambi Israel, because the Tzibur unity didn't happen at the time of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. It happened a little bit later at Matan Torah, as we know very well. As we know very well, when the Yidin camped at Har Sinai, it was with absolute unity. So only then do you get the Tzibur component. You see this? When the Yidin are still in Mitzrayim, they only have the Yochid components. Everybody does the Korban Pesach absolutely as individuals. After the Torah is given, we now add another layer to the experience. Now we're also at Tzibur. Now we also have this some this this oneness that is greater than the sum of the parts. Uh, but still, even when they were Mitzrayim, they still brought a carbon Pesach, even though they didn't have the Tzibur element to it. In fact, many of the practical halachas we learn for all carbon Pesach till the end of time, we get from Pesach Mitzrayim. That shows us that Pesach Mitzrayim is the beginning and the source of every Korban Pesach that would follow. Why? Why is Karban Pesach, when we were Yechidim in Mitzrayim, so important, so pivotal to all the Karbanas for the rest of time? To show us that even after we become the singular entity, after Matan Torah, we still retain value as Yechidim. Parenthetically, by the way, if you actually examine closely enough, Karban Pesach Mitzrayim also had an element of Tzibur. There was a taste of the Tzibur element already still in Mitzrayim at that Karben Pesach in Mesupa Medrash, as the Medrash tells us, Everybody had a sampling of Moshe Rabbeinu's Karben Pesach, so everybody participated as one. There was a communal element. Because as we've just defined, Karben Pesach is the source the cause of every other carbon Pesach for the rest of time, it had to have something that was similar to the rest of carbon Pesach for the rest of time. Zoe, 
This principle that the fact that we're a unified nation does not in any way undermine our individual power is actually reflected in every carbon Sibur, not only carbon Pesach. Even though carbonus Sibur have to come from communal funds, and the expression the Gemara uses is that they have to be really, really being handed over to the community in a true way. It means that no person should be able to identify their own money, so to speak, in the budget of the communal sacrifices. Nevertheless, every person, every individual retains a like we see when Moshe Rabbeinu said about Kerach Hashem, please don't turn to their offerings. So what does it say? brings it, I think, too, that um, it says that Moshe Rabbeinu was saying, I know that they have a chalik in the Karbonos Tzibur, they have a chalik in the Karbon Tzibur, please do not consider their chalik. There you have it. That a carbon tzibur has a personal connection as well. In addition, he has another example of how the individual is powerful, but not more powerful than the community is. What if you have to weigh up individual versus the community? We do not relinquish an individual to save the community. You would have thought, community is the main thing. We're now this one big entity of unity. No, no. The individual is that important that you don't sell out the individual. As we well know from the Rambam, What if the Goyim come to us and they say, give us one of you people, otherwise we're killing you all. The Rambam says clearly, you do not surrender one Jew, even if it will imperil everybody. Teaches us a critically important piece of information. Yes, it's true that the interests of the community are more important and will override the interests of the individual, but the interests of the community cannot erase the individual. So there's the paradox. We're all part of a community, yet we all retain our individual worth. This, all, everything we've learned till now, Tzibur, Yachid, the importance of the community, the value of the individual, all plays out in the story of Hillel when he becomes the Nasi and when he proves to the Bnei Becerra that you can actually bring the Korban Pesach on a Shabbos. And it's no accident that we always read this straight after Pesach. So in the same way as we've described with regards to the tzibur, that the tzibur has to have this duality. On the one hand, the tzibur has to be a, a unified organism, and on the other hand, it has to recognize the value of every person. Every person also has to have both perspectives. The individual also has to have the balance between both. As Hillel says, on the one in Aleph, if I don't care for myself, who else is going to care for me? The importance of the Yochid. But if I'm completely focused on myself and forget about the community, what am I? Balance of Yochid and Sibur. The reality of a person is a person is an individual. Ani Li. 
On the other hand, if the person is not clearly part of the community, is actually nothing. Paradoxical perspective. That's how a Jew has to see himself and see the world. Now the fact that this duality is expressed, Dafka in the Korban Pesach, which has the Yochid and the Rabbim element to it, so we can actually connect and explain Hillel's expression with Pesach itself. And by way of introduction, goes without saying, obviously, in the time of Hillel, they did not have the Minag to, to learn Pirkei Ovis between Pesach and Shavuos, but nothing's by accident, right? Torah is eternal, and therefore it applies at all times, even retroactively, and a minag is Torah. So it goes without saying that this teaching of Hillel, which we typically learn the Shabbos after Pesach, is linked to Pesach. How so? Babir explanation is this. As we mentioned right at the beginning, Hillel was the one who clarified to the Bnei Becerra and ruled that the Korban Pesach overrides Shabbos. And as we explained earlier, the logic that Hillel used to prove his point is that the Korban Pesach is technically a Korban Tzibur. The Gemara tells us this is what prompted them not just to accept Hillel's ruling, but to appoint him as the Nasi. Isn't it incredible, Ashkocha Pratis? Straight after Pesach, the time of the year because of the circumstances of that time which caused Hillel to become a Nasi, straight after Pesach we learn his teaching in Pirkei Avos. What's his teaching? First he says, I am who I am. I'm a yochid, and as a yochid, I deserve to bring a Korban Pesach. The individual has to be an individual in context of the Korban Pesach. His money, his group that he has to be counted in. On the other hand, if I'm only caring about myself, what am I? Meaning, if the Yochid is just a Yochid and he doesn't recognize that his carbon Pesach is part of the community, then he has no carbon Pesach. So therefore, what would happen if you only saw the carbon Pesach as a carbon Yochid? You would not have the reason to be able to override Shabbos, so you wouldn't have a Pesach. And Hillel says, Moani, what would I have? I wouldn't become a Nasi if not for this argument. I, as we mentioned much earlier in the Sicha, surely in order for a carbon to override Shabbos, not only does it have to be a carbon Sibur, because we saw Parahelem Dovashot Sibur does not override Shabbos, it also has to have a time factor that the date has to be today. Therefore, Hillel says, if not now, if we don't bring this carbon today, if it doesn't have the specific time, then it wouldn't be a carbon that could override Shabbos. Okay, 
Just as every one of us has to see this duality and this paradox in our lives, I am absolutely powerful and absolutely responsible for my own development and growth and commitment to Yiddishkeit. And at the same time, I have to be completely part of the tzibur. That's how we have to look at the next person too. Why do we have Abba Sisro? Because the fundamental principle of Judaism is that we're actually all one. As Altarepa says, the Jewish community is really like the limbs of a single body. There are also various ways that you could explain that. Aleph, one way you could explain it is that each one of us is part of this great organism called Like, for example, we say if there was one person missing at Har Sinai, Matan Torah could never have happened. Or as we say, if you have a communal fast and the sinners are not part of it, it's not a communal fast. So, one aspect is we're all part of the communal, we're all part of the collective. And that's not because of our greatness, it's because of what we belong to, because of the collective that we form. And on the other hand, in addition to that, every one of us has our own individual value. My value cannot be represented or, or, or uh, replicated by anybody else. Without my value, the whole system is lacking. As Altareba says, there are certain elements by which the leg has advantage over the head and is the head in that respect. The only thing is that here I'm seeing my greatness is that I'm a piece of the puzzle. So my uniqueness is I can contribute something to this tapestry that nobody else can contribute. But what's fascinating is that the Alter Rebbe was dissatisfied with saying that's where it ends. That what's great about us is what we belong to. We're great because we're cogs in a wheel. That's not what he says. He says before that Alter Rebbe, when it comes to the individual soul of each individual, you don't begin to appreciate how great they are in Hashem's reality. And therefore, therefore the mitzvah of Abbas is not just to love him because he's part of our family, because without him the whole system goes down, but to love him because of his greatness. Not because he's part of the Klal or what he's going to contribute. Because he is valuable. And even that love, to see each individual as essentially valuable, is part of when you look at the various limbs of a body, each one, of course, has to be individual, has to fulfill its particular task, but it all belongs to one body. So when you look at your pinky finger, do you have to look at it in terms of what part it plays in the whole body to give it value? No, it's mine. It's my finger. And therefore it's valuable. 
When we take this approach and attitude to Avas Yisrael for the next person, then that will invoke from Hashem His incredible love towards us. And Abish will take us out of Golis also in both of these two ways. On the one hand, on the one hand, Hashem will take each individual out because each individual is worth saving and each individual is valuable. Rashi says, like Hashem is going to take each person by the hand and literally pull us out of Golis. In fact, when it says that Hashem is going to pull everyone out of God, it includes himself too. As the Pasuk says, Hashem is going to return with us. The Shekhinah will return with us. And then we get to the next level, which is where we're all brought together as a single uniform organism called Godel. That should happen. Take it from Yad Mamash.